toi tū te marae a tāne, toi tū te marae a tangaroa, toi tū te iwi. When the realm of tāne and tangaroa are sustained, so too will iwi. E nā iwi o te motu ki nā iwi no wāhike, nau mai ki te hōtaka nei a te ahikā, ko marae rakuraku ahau. Ko Justin Murray ahau, welcome to Te Ahikā, our kaupapa Māori series on Radio New Zealand National, giving insight into things Māori. This week, let us transport you back to the days of tuxes, frocks and swing bands, as Justine attends a kaumātua social paying homage to Kingi Tāhiwi. Te Ropu Tāhiwi was formed after the late Tiariki Nui, Māori Queen Dame Tia Tairangi Kahu, noticed contemporary songs at the National Kapaka competitions were replacing older numbers. And well, she missed that. And while kapahaka competitions can be fierce, at the end of the day, it's all about whānau. We thoroughly enjoy getting together. We thoroughly enjoy this sort of thing here. But performing... And, okay, so we have our senior moments now and again, and you think, Hikama, what's the next line? What's the next action? Where am I supposed to go? But it doesn't matter. Julie Dwyer, saxophone music, and the rest of Te Ropitahiwi coming up. Last week we profiled Chief Judge Wilson Isaac, nor Tuhoi Ngāti Kahunanua Ngāti who spoke of his dual roles as the newly appointed Chief Judge of the Māori Land Court and as Chair of the Waitangi Tribunal. This week he tells us how he's combined his legal responsibilities with whānau life. My eldest son, he started off in, in doing law in, in Canterbury and got into law school and then decided it was not for him and now he's uh, essentially a hunter. So... I might have taught him too well. <laughs> to follow his own path. Well, I don't know. To follow my path as a, as a hunter in my earlier days. And with the five-year government deadline of 2014 to have all treaty settlements, well, settled, Chief Judge Wilson Isaac just may be the last Waitangi Tribunal chairperson. We've got that coming up in this week's edition of Te Ahika. Ko te mea tuatahi, first up. Hey, Justine, you've seen this ad on TV, eh? Yeah, that's the one featuring Reese Darbier, the comedian who plays Murray the manager in the comedy series Flight of the Concords. That's right. Well, is there anything in that ad, which is advertising mobile phone company Two Degrees, that tells you it's a Māori-owned business? No, there isn't. Not a koru or tamoko in sight. <laughs> exactly. And yet, this is news to me too, Justine, it is a Māori-owned business. Though, as we're about to hear from Pākehā Brian Lees, now he's the chairperson of Hotaki Limited, it's a relatively complicated affair. That involves a company managing a radio spectrum, a revolutionary Waitangi tribunal claim, and what has become apparent, an enormous amount of insight and clever investment. Hotaki Limited is a corporate trustee who owned the 3G spectrum rights on behalf of all Māori. It's a Pan Māori Trust. A Pan Māori Trust. Absolutely. So by Pan Māori, it means that it's owned on behalf of every Māori in, in the world, really? Correct. Every man, woman and child. Now you've held... Are the beneficiaries at the end of the day. Now, is that beneficiaries in a fiscal sense? Well, I think it's more in a, in a physical and commercial sense because any um, monies, profits that we generate... Say, for example, from our investment in two degrees, 
any dividends will flow back to the to the main trust, and they have a mandate to um, promote the um, the activities of Māori people in the IT sector. For example, training, coaching, awards, whatever else that they think is appropriate jobs. So going. you hold a directorship alongside Bill Osborne, who's probably more well-known as been a former All Black. Correct. You've held that role since 2001? I've been a director of Hotaki Limited since 2001, and I've been the chairman of Hotaki for the last two and a half years. So prior to your involvement with Hotaki Limited, had your experience with Māori organisations, what had that been up until that, that period of time? Pretty well nil, pretty well zero, yeah. And how have you found it? I've really enjoyed it. I found it very um, enlightening and challenging. Um, as you know, it's been a long, hard road to get to where we are today. Um, but no, it's, um, it's been very um, rewarding too. Okay, so what do you mean by enlightening? Well, never having worked with Māori organisations before, um, obviously um, learnt a lot, um, dealing with various um, cultural issues, um, as well as the, the way they do things commercially. It's a little different. Okay, so how is it different? Well, I think it's more, um, more friendly and relationship building than you might experience in the normal um, you know, commercial world, where everything's more black and white, uh, everything is you know, written down in full documentation. I think this is a lot more um, handshake, looking in the eye type of way of doing business. Which is one you, which is which the type is refreshing, you which is refreshing, yeah. But that doesn't take away from any of the hardcore oh, no. commercial decisions that get that need that, to be made. That's right. At the end of the day, the the, the hard decisions get made, and the, hopefully the correct decisions get made. But I think it's just a different style. What role does Hotaki play in Two Degrees Two Degrees Mobile? Well, we um, we own um, collectively with other Māori investors 20% of the shareholding of Two Degrees Mobile. And our role in there is to, um, I guess, look after that 20% shareholding by virtue of having two board seats at the table of Two Degrees Mobile. And those two board seats are two out of eight. So we, we, we don't have a majority say, but we have a strong influence. And those two board seats are held by Bill Osborne and myself, and Bill is the chairman of Two Degrees. So <clears throat> we have, I guess, um, more representation on the board of Two Degrees than our shareholding would otherwise dictate, which I think is great. And I think the other major shareholders recognise the importance of having uh, local and um, Māori uh, interests on their board. They're, they're very much in favour of and keen for us to maintain and protect our 20% shareholding. So, I, I mean, what people may not know, eh, Brian, is that Two Degrees Mobile is a Māori business. It is, definitely. It's, in fact, the only New Zealand ownership of Two Degrees is all Māori. There is no other New Zealand ownership. So do you think that should engender some degree of pride from you know, from Absolutely. New Zealand customers? And Absolutely. You know, we started 10 years ago with the rights to a block of 3G mobile radio spectrum. Which was acquired through a Waitangi Tribunal claim. And along with that, our parent trust, sorry, uh, Tahiro Tika Trust, was received a $5 million grant from the government. And of that, we were told to go out and find a commercial solution for the use of this 3G mobile spectrum. Um, at that day... Um, 
the only people that had um, mobile spectrum and 3G spectrum was Telecom and Vodafone, uh, two big players in a, in a duopoly in New Zealand in a market that was fairly heavily um, saturated in terms of number of phones in, per population. <clears throat> so we managed over, the, over that period of time of nine years to not only find a commercial solution for our asset, which is owned by Māori, we also ended up owning 20% of a mobile phone company, which is now up and running and doing extremely well. So from very small beginnings, I think we haven't done too bad. I mean, 10 years on the on an international scale, I mean, is that pretty standard for a business to go from nothing to operating as two degrees is now? Well, um, it was probably longer than normal. You'd expect to be able to get up and running in a period of time less than 10 years, and one of the biggest um, delaying factors or stumbling blocks that we encountered over that 10 years was not so much finding the capital from overseas to build the network, but to um, finding the capital that would be prepared to invest in New Zealand in a um, regulatory environment that was appropriate to um, you know normal Western economies. Our regulatory environment was very... Um, um, one-sided towards the incumbents. And international investors who invest in third mobile operators around the world would normally get regulatory protection to be able to enter the market. Well, there was none here. And it's only been in the last probably three years since you know a lot of the um, regulations have changed that would have, that enabled a third entrant to enter the market. And so that's when those... we really got traction was in the last two to three years. Now, have those regulations been generated by market force by um, other players wanting to get involved or is it just the way that the world's going in terms of technology? No, I think it's been predominantly due to a, a, a lot of lobbying by people like Two Degrees and our predecessors um, as well as other small potential entrants. And I think the, the governments of the day, which is both Labour and National, have recognised that, yeah, if we want to make this market truly competitive, we have to change the rules. Because at the end of the day, it's the competitiveness that will benefit the consumer, Exactly, isn't it? yes. Because rates will drop? They have, yes. Um, they will drop and <clears throat> they will continue to drop as the, as the market becomes more competitive. And things that are still being sort of settled at the moment, like mobile termination rates... If they drop even further, then there's the potential for all the um, incumbents to get more competitive on their pricing. That will benefit not only the consumers but also the economy because you get a more efficient economy with, um, with lower-cost um, communications. Now, people would recognise the advertisements for the Two Degrees Mobile because they're the ones that are fronted by Reece Darby. That's right, yes. Now... But other than, you know, being fronted by a comedian, why would, why would, what would make somebody turn from the Vodafone mobile to two degrees? Well, I think the, it's, the advertising was primarily to um, lift the image of the brand because it was a brand new company that nobody had ever heard of before we launched. And the, the, the advertising campaign was primarily designed to build that awareness that, hey, we're here. We're two degrees, and we're we're launching a, a new network. The other part of the of the advertising program was to demonstrate, you know, the savings, what it was going to cost to join two degrees, and how much you were going to save. And the pricing they've got is obviously working because they're getting uh, significant numbers of people moving from the other two carriers. 
if you look at the spectrum, so there's 3G and 2G, right? Now, if I was to describe that in terms of cars, is one like a luxury European model and is the other one like a Toyota? Is it like one's one's like high-performance, elite, while the other one's just a good old no, faithful? No, it's not so much elite. You could say that 3G is definitely a higher-performance car. It goes faster and it's more efficient on fuel, say. A two-degree, uh, sorry, a two... Um, 2G motor vehicle would be slower and churn up more gas. So 3G is a lot more efficient to use for radio networks. Okay, so 3G is a spectrum that two degrees hold. That Hotaki holds. That Hotaki Limited holds. That's correct. Nobody else in the country holds that. The 3G is is broken up into into blocks. And and Hotaki has one block, (coughs) which it uses exclusively for its own network. Telecom has its own block. And Vodafone has its own block. So we all use our own blocks um, of 3G spectrum to run our own services. So if I was to simplify it, there's no way that Vodafone and Telecom want to expand that market out to another player, is it? They want to hold the monopoly on it? Well, they don't have a monopoly, but they do have a very strong market position, both Vodafone and Telecom. Um, And they own 3G spectrum just like Hotaki does. And they they, they can't necessarily sell their spectrum to another party. They can't buy spectrum um, from another party to block out com- um, competitors because there are things which they call spectrum caps, which means only one player can own a certain amount of spectrum. So you can't have somebody buy up all the spectrum and then say, sorry guys, now you can't run your phone networks because I've got it all. So the government has broken it into blocks of spectrum, which are what they call caps. You cannot exceed that cap. So, so that makes sure that everyone can get a slice of the, the airwaves. So what prevents another player from coming into the scene? Well, they'd have to go and buy um, their own 3G spectrum. And the 3G spectrum was pretty well all auctioned off back in um, 1999, 2000. So it was all sold. So if we look at it, it was quite progressive how Huarahi Tika identified the need for that spectrum. Absolutely. 10 years ago. Yep. And at that time, 3G services weren't even invented. You know, like the, the fast broadband and, mo- and email on your phone and all that sort of stuff. That wasn't, wasn't really um, in mainstream use. So it was quite forward-looking. Whereas now it's, um, you can watch movies on your, your phone just about and you need sort of um, broadband 3G spectrum to do that. So, you know, 10 years ago, all you had was... Uh, voices and texts. Now, now you can it's do just anything. Mind just blowing. Pay. Yeah, it's just and, mind and, blowing what you, know, you can do. You can do all your emails on your on your laptop while just plugging in a you know little um, data card. Well, there's something I'd like to, um, to to point out, I suppose, is that we, as you know, we are trying to raise money um, to maintain our twenty percent shareholding in two degrees, and to do that, to keep up to twenty percent, we have to raise about. Twenty million dollars, um, but being a, a, a startup company, we have to we have to um, raise equity as we build our network, roll it out, and you know we've over the last <clears throat> couple of years raised over two hundred million dollars from shareholders to fund the building of the network and rolling out of the services. So we've we've had um, three or four calls for equity this year, and our share of that is about twenty million, and. Um, 
we need to find Māori investors because Hotaki doesn't have its own any resources of its own. The only ho- only resources Hotaki has is the spectrum, and that, as I say, that original four million grant that it got ten years ago. Is the preference for Māori investors? It is the only um, preference we have at this stage. It's only av- available for Māori investors, um, and <clears throat> the. There are restrictions. Is obviously it's not a public offering, so we can't go and offer it to mums and dads because to do that it would be a we would need a prospectus and have to comply with the security regulations of the Security Act. So this is pretty standard practice. Eh? Cause I'm just thinking about when I've seen newspaper ads from organisations having to call out for for the same kind of thing. I'm just thinking about this pine forestry. Company that was right. looking to get... raise equity, mm. yeah. Well, that would that would be a public offering if they're advertising it in the newspaper, for which they would have to have a prospectus. Yeah, we're making a private offering to um, Maori organisations, um, and and <clears throat> we've been setting the the threshold at around about five hundred thousand dollars per investor, and that way we. We believe that we're not breaching the security regulations because, by definition, they would be sophisticated investors. Which Gosh, means you it's don't. Big bucks, isn't it? It is big bucks, and and that's why it has not been easy to um, to raise the twenty million that we've been looking for. Because realistically, Brian Brian Lee's, I mean, how how many Maori are operating in that kind of? Not many. No, you know, probably you could count them on you know one and a half hands. The organisations, the Māori organisations... There'd be iwi, iwi yep, organisations, yep. post-treaty, post-treaty settlement. Post-treaty iwi um, organisations that could front up with you know, half a million plus dollars each. So so that's been one um, hurdle that we've obviously had to work within, is the rules of, of raising money. We've also been working in the uh, environment over the last year where you know, we've had global recessions, so people are not rushing out, investing money um, in anything that they're not familiar, except for, you know, the traditional areas where Māori organisations have invested, which is property and farming and fishing, forestry, and all the things that they've, they're comfortable with and they've, have been doing for a long time. They, they do invest and are still investing in those areas. But this is a high-technology investment. This is a new asset class, which you know they haven't had much exposure to in the past. But this is the way of the world. This is the way of the world. As, as Mavis said in her chairman's report... Um, the, That's Mavis Mullins. Yeah, Mavis Mullins. Uh, this is the new real estate, the, the radio spectrum and the mobile communications. And to a large degree, a lot of it is real estate. You know, you build a lot of infrastructure. Instead of trees, you've got you know poles and cell sites and towers and switches. So, you know, it is really an infrastructure investment. But because it's a it's a high technology one, it is um, I guess maybe outside some of their comfort zones in terms of a, an asset class that they wish to invest in. So those three things have made it somewhat difficult for us to to raise the um, the money we need. Why just Māori investors? That was the <clears throat> the deal we made when we originally invited um, our overseas investors to um, participate in um, what was called then New Zealand Communications. It's now had a name change to two degrees. We said, you can come in and take up to 80% of the company, but we want to reserve 20% for Māori. And otherwise they would have taken probably the whole lot. 
So we've, we've reserved a block of, of equity in um, two degrees just for Māori and what is defined as approved Māori investors, which is really like the, um, the large iwi that can front up with the half million plus um, size of investment. But of course, while we have that reserved, um, we can't reserve it forever. You know, when they make equity calls, we have to be able to make those payments. So if we don't make the payments, then our 20% will drop, will get diluted, which will be a real shame. Because, you know, having a 20% say in a, in a large mobile phone company is, is worth having, worth so, fighting for. So, Brian, why isn't this more public? Yeah, well, that's a good question. I mean, so we have to be careful about advertising because I mentioned earlier about security regulations. We can't go out and, and advertise for people to subscribe for shares in two degrees because we're, we're potentially getting into um, trouble with the, the security regulations. So it has to be done by one-on-one -on -one invitations. And we, we have been, since February of this year, we've been holding many, many, many hui around the country where we've sat down with the with the iwi and said here's the opportunity uh, this is what we what we're about this is what we're doing and um, we would love you to come in and uh, join us to maintain our 20 percent so it is well known by the people that are able to make the decisions we believe so if i was to simplify this if every maori who has a cell phone switched to two degrees what sort of impact would that have? Wow, um, it would be huge in terms of the value of the business that um, they own. They own 20% of the business. So if they were to switch to two degrees, are we talking here like two to 300,000 people maybe? Mm. Yeah, that would have a significant impact on the, um, on the success and value of the business over time. No question. And then if... Every Māori who could cough up five hundred thousand dollars <laughs> came knocking on your door. What sort of impact would that have? Well, great. We could maintain our twenty percent um, control or ownership, rather, of the of the company. So we would not only have a more successful company, but we would have a bigger share of it. Māori so, would, yeah. So, with those figures in mind, Brian, I mean, is it really a Māori company if eighty percent is owned by overseas investors? Well, it's, it's no, it's not a Māori company in, in its entirety. We 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 own a, a what I call a, a significant stake in the company, but you cannot build a, a an entire mobile network from resources in New Zealand, and that's both money and people. You have to go offshore to get the sort of money you need to build it. And um, as I say, we've we've now invested with our overseas partners over $200 million in building this network. And we couldn't find in New Zealand $200 million from any, you know, from Māori or anyone else. Yeah, we just don't have that. We just don't have that kind of money here, it's a, eh? It's a big, big mm. investment, <clears throat> and it's a long payback period. You know, it's not like you put your your dollar in today and get a dividend tomorrow. You got to wait till you've built up your business and got all your customers signed up and you know generating lots and lots of calls. Then you start making profits. So it's 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 a medium to long term return business. The only way you could possibly get a commercial operation up up and running is to have overseas investment. Fortunately, with our major shareholder trilogy, they've done this in many other countries. They're very experienced in mobile phone. Um, build and running, which is fantastic. So they're a great strategic shareholder to have.
My name's Tex Edwards from Two Degrees Mobile. The business case for Māori participating in Two Degrees Mobile is fantastic. The investment opportunity in New Zealand to participate as a shareholder in a mobile phone network is to benefit from ongoing fixed-to-mobile substitution. Fixed-to-mobile substitution means the consumer behaviour process of adopting mobile phone usage to substitute for fixed line usage. Today, in New Zealand, we have an inefficient telecommunication system. Most people text frenetically and then wait till they get home to a landline and then use the landline to make their voice calls. In most other countries, we have the economic efficiency of people using their mobile phones to have actual voice calls to uh, communicate socially, to communicate as business people, to communicate as sports people. And unfortunately in New Zealand, because mobile phones have been so expensive to date, that uh, all the traffic has been on the fixed line. The fixed line in New Zealand isn't free. It's very expensive. $42 a month for a fixed line is a lot of money to pay. You also have to pay for additional money for long distance calls in New Zealand, international calls. And the benefits as an equity investor in, in two degrees is to benefit from that move to fixed to mobile substitution. When we look at any of the normal international operating metrics, we see that New Zealanders haven't adopted mobile phones as instruments to improve productivity and the minutes of use by New Zealanders on mobile phone is very small compared to international comparisons where in the US we see something like five to six hundred minutes a month on mobile phone calls in New Zealand we're way under a hundred minutes a month. Okay but the reality is that in rural areas so where most of my whanau come from they live in the wap wops there is no cell phone coverage so they do have no choice but to go with landlines. Um, the reason why there is no, the, the reason why there is inadequate rural wireless delivery in New Zealand is that to date there has been no competition. It was two degrees submission to the Commerce Commission that actually telecom didn't aggressively compete with Vodafone in the mobile arena, because if telecom, an organisation that owns a five billion dollar landline network, were to aggressively drive its mobile phone business it would cannibalise its landline business, its, six, its $5 billion landline business. So uh, from an economist's perspective, telecom hasn't been competing vigorously with Vodafone. Of course there's different advertisements and there's different handsets and there's different uh, periphery, f trivial competition. But there is no aggressive competition. Telecom is in landline, Vodafone is in mobile. We've proved to the Commerce Commission that in Auckland prepaid market segments, 95% of Auckland is on Vodafone and 86% of Dunedin is on telecom in prepaid market segments. As a consequence, we've proved that these two organisations are not aggressively competing against each other to benefit the end users of New Zealand telecommunication services. Simply put, we need a third operator to break up this cosy duopoly and create benefits for all of New Zealand. Kia ora whaia, kia ora dia, tēnā koe. Kei te kore roa tua hau kia ritana tāwhewhirangi. Whaia, ko koe tētahi o ngā mema i raru i te maru o Electoral College, ne? Kia hata tino kaupapo tērā tūmahi? Tāmātou mahi ki te whakaingoa ngā tāngata i o rotu mātou whakaaro te whakanoho mai rātou i rungai te 
te trust. the Kōrero About Two Degrees Mobile featured Editana Tafifirangi, Tex Edwards and Brian Lees. Mariah, did you celebrate Guy Fawkes on Thursday, November 5th? Not so much celebrate, more like look at the pretty fireworks. What about you? Yeah, about the same. Well, it was always a big deal and exciting when I was a kid, but now I think it's kind of bizarre that we celebrate something that could potentially be akin to terrorism in today's world, and it's an event that really has very little to do with the history of Aotearoa. Yeah, a bit like Halloween, there are calls for dates relevant to our country's history to be celebrated. Like Waitangi Day, Labour Day. And for November the 5th to be remembered as the date of the world's first recorded account of passive resistance that took place here, Maraia, in Aotearoa, Taranaki, no less. At Parihaka Pa in 1881, when the infantry invaded the Pa and the people of Parihaka responded with songs, passive resistance. As advocated by their leaders, Te Fitsi Orongomai, Taranaki, Tiatiawa, and Tohukakahi, Taranaki, and get this, Justine, 40 years before Mahatma Gandhi, whose acts of 
piece of resistance or legendary 40 years before that. So maybe there is some teeth in Aotearoa memorialising its own history. Maybe, Justine. Last week on Tiahika, we played part one of an interview with Wilson Isaac, who is the current chairman of the Waitangi Tribunal and the chief judge of the Māori Land Court, two of the most prestigious positions within the justice system. Not bad for someone who initially wanted to follow in the footsteps of his schoolteacher parents. But what about the man behind the robes? Well, we're back with Chief Judge Wilson Isaac, whose love of hunting could possibly equal his love of the law and work on the bench. I'm Mariah Rakraku, this is Te Ahika, and I'm talking with the chairperson of the Waitangi Tribunal and Chief Judge of the Māori Land Court, Wilson Isaac. So it's highly likely you're going to be the very last Waitangi Tribunal chairperson. Oh, no, poss- possibly not. Uh, as I say, my, my tenure is for five years. Um, but if we're looking at that 2014 deadline? Well, that's not that's not saying that the tribunal's going to go up in smoke as at 2014. I mean, we're going to have to... Um, we, we, we mightn't get all the work done. Um, so we're going to have to conclude uh, those claims. Um, but we're certainly focused on on trying to do as much as we can. Why is it that the general New Zealand public have this whole image of the Waitangi Tribunal as assisting Māori to become more privileged than any other pe- any other groups in Aotearoa? Given you know the mm. amount of work, the research, all the time and money that's spent supporting the tribunal and the work that they do, I I don't know. It's probably a lack of education, a lack of knowledge. Um, a lack of, as you put it, the general public not attending uh, tribunal hearings, tribunal inquiries. Um, I know the inquiries that I've dealt with, Mohaka Ki uh, the Northern South Island Inquiry and the National Park Inquiry, um, we have had and invited and put notices in the paper to try and get the general public there, as in I guess Pākehā New Zealand to come along. Which is the standard process for yep. all tribunal hearings, Nera. Yes, it is. Mm. Yeah. And those that have come have often expressed yeah, awe at, at how the process works, at the fairness of the process, the fact that we are not the Crown, we are an independent commission of inquiry, uh, looking at grievances or claims against the Crown by Māori. And the way the tribunal is set up is to ensure that there's a fair balance of people on that tribunal. For example, you know, a presiding officer, normally a judge of the Māori land court, sometimes Māori, sometimes not. We normally have um, a balance of genders, a balance of races, mm. a balance of skills, so that um, it's not only looks to be fair, but it is fair and 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 claims are looked at in the most um, fair manner to ensure that all the rules of natural justice are complied with mm. yeah it's a trend it's a relatively you know having been involved in the Uruwera claim it's a relatively transparent process it's a totally transparent mm. process and um, and and I guess the, the sad fact is that people, may choose not to 
be engaged or just think that it's a part of their of, of New Zealand society that they don't want to know about. I don't know. And then there's the perception that lawyers are the only, uh, just the fat cats, <laughs> licking off the cream. Well, maybe. Maybe <laughs> that might be the perception. But largely, I mean, the, I'm certainly not going out in defence of lawyers or, or not, but um, they're there to do a job. And um, and I guess it's the, it's the tribunal's um, duty and obligation to ensure that they're kept on track um, and to ensure that um, the process is done as efficiently as possible to honour the, the claims and the grievances that have been put before us. Um, and that's, that's what we try and achieve. Mm. Have you ever felt compromised in terms of your tahamabi? No. I, I, I haven't. I, I no. don't know whether I need to take that any further. I haven't felt compromised. So going back through, when you were going through law school, have you, over the years, seen many of your colleagues in different roles in the legal system? Uh, your fellow students? Yep. Uh, absolutely. I... Um, you know, we've all gone in, in different directions. Uh, uh, when I when I started law school, or when I started university, I had no um, aspirations of being a multilingual judge. Um, and when I was in, in practice in Gisborne, uh, I was asked by by the then deputy chief judge, who was a former partner of mine. Um, Ashley George McHugh, known as Chick McHugh, whether I would consider being a Māori land court judge. And that was, ooh, I became a judge in 1994. That would have been at least four years before becoming a judge. And at the time, um, we were having a few issues in our in our firm and I, I decided to stay there. Uh, perhaps I shouldn't have, but I made that, I made that decision. Um, yeah, but but certainly, a number of of classmates, uh, a number of people I went through university with, have been very successful, uh, and have achieved what they have wanted to achieve, in in all areas of their life. You know, farmers, um, sports people, lawyers, um, many of whom are now judges. Uh, so, Chief Judge Wilson Isaac, were you the first one in your whanau to go to law school? Yes. So as the first person in your whānau to go through law school, have you then paved the way for the rest of your family? My immediate family, I, I make it very clear to them that um, I, I would like them to do what they want to do. I don't want to push them in any direction. My eldest son, he's, uh, he started off in, in doing law in, in Canterbury and got into law school. And then decided it was not for him, and now he's uh, essentially a hunter. So, um, <laughs> yeah. <laughs> so I, I the might. Boys have, on the horses. <laughs> I might have taught him too well. <laughs> uh, to follow his own path. <laughs> well, I don't know. To follow my path as a as a hunter in my earlier days. Um, but no, I I have I I don't want to pave the path for anyone. I mean, people follow their own destinies. Mm. Um, and their own aspirations and desires, and 
if they want to do law, they'll do law. At your swearing-in, at your marae at Pākirikiri, the Minister of Māori Affairs, Peter Sharples, he said that the wide connections that you have into different iwi would serve you well in your role as a Māori Land Court judge. Could you explain that? I presume he meant that uh, my connections in terms of my family connections, Ngāti Parau, Tūhoi and Kahunanu extend across a wide area, um, but also uh, my connections working where I have worked in terms of my Waitangi Tribunal claims that I presided over, which were in the Northern South Island, the National Park, and, and Mohaka Kiahuriri, uh, covered a, a wide variety of iwi and hapu. And also, as a judge, we travel extensively. So we work closely with many areas um, on the Māori Appellate Court, we can go to any part of the country. We get knowledge of and and get to know um, a lot of people. A lot of people in a lot of areas. And mean. you get to know all the people generationally, Toa, through the surnames. Yep, if we stay long enough. <laughs> <laughs> do you ever, I mean, does the responsibility of what you do weigh heavily upon you? <laughs> Sometimes it does. Uh, sometimes, I mean, it's like any job. You have some good and bad days. Sometimes matters are urgent and need to be dealt with before they're being dealt with. Other times things are done in a methodical and organised fashion. But it's like any job, as I say. You, you have good days and bad, and it's just a matter of, in my view, being organised and being ready to cope with what whatever comes in front of you. Could you see yourself going back to being a school teacher? Which I've never is what been you a school teacher. Wanted to do. <laughs> well, actually, I, when I say I've never been a school teacher, I used to help out as a, a teacher's aide and, and um, relieve occasionally at schools, which I which I enjoyed. Uh, no, I can never see myself doing that. I can see myself as a as a as a farmer, um, yeah, living back back on the land, back up home, uh, or as a as a uh, as a hunter again. Which I, I still enjoy doing. I still, um, as often Can as I, I can, I still I'm pigs. still out on a horse um, hunting pigs and deer. You know, my father. I said to him, "You know, Dad, um, how come you don't go hunting anymore?" And he said to me, "Oh, I just don't like being cold." <laughs> he just come to walk faster. Yeah, <laughs> and he just said he just couldn't stand being cold anymore. Yeah, <laughs> and having wet feet. Yeah, no, no. We we still go out at home a lot. And I mean, we're privileged to be able. Well, I'm privileged to be able to uh, to go from mm. the urban jungle back to relative peace and um, and tranquility on the edge of the bush. Himihiatsu um Chief Judge Wilson Isaac. Kia Tuhoi Ngāti Kahununu Ngāti Wilson Isaac, in discussion with me, which concludes our profile on the Chief Judge of the Māori Land Court and Chairperson of the Waitangi Tribunal. If you head to our webpage, radioNZ.co.nz forward slash tiahika, you can hear that interview in its entirety. And while there, why not look at our photo gallery of photographs of different events we've covered over the past 12 months? And you can always contact us at tiahika, that's T-E, a-H-I-K-A-A at radionz.co.nz If there's anything in your community relevant to Māori we may be interested in. I'm Justine Murray. I'm Mariah Rakraku and this is Te Ahika.
Located north of Wellington, Waitangirua is usually associated with state housing and the New Zealand Police College. But last weekend, big band standards were belted from the suburb's local marae, marae and gumboots and bush shirts were replaced by tuxes and sparkly frocks. Tahiwi is a nationwide group made up of Komatsua and Kuia, and for the past two years, their kapahaka group have performed at the Matariki celebrations held at Te Papa Museum. On a warm and sunny Saturday afternoon, the group are holding a fundraiser, $20 per ticket that covers your nibbles, your drinks, and of course the band. Do you love like this music? Does it bring back memories for you? Oh, it does. It does. It's awesome. Where are you from, Rangi? Um, the Wider Rapper plus Dannyburg. <laughs> now, what does a social like this mean to you? Wonderful, and I think it's great bring all the, the young and the old together. It's simply fabulous. It just goes to show that uh, you don't have to be young to enjoy yourself. We enjoy ourselves. Is there a special song that brings back memories for you? Oh, they all do. The, the instruments and all, the players, wonderful, wonderful. And what kind of music, you know, were you into at that time? Well, all the old songs, um, um, all the old Maori songs, really. With my grandmother, great-grandmother, when she used to plant a garden, she, she used to do all the wyatus, and we as children, well, with the on, we caught on, but it was wonderful. Wonderful. And how long have you lived in, in Wellington? 37, 38 years. About that, yes. You have children? Yes, I had nine children, but I bought up 13. <laughs> Man, superwoman. Superwoman. Hey, got a mic? Are you enjoying yourself tonight? Am I? Enjoying yes, very much. It's a lovely occasion. Does this music spark back memories for you? Oh, a lot of memories for these old-time dancers, yes. What kind of memories? Can you share any? Well, I particularly remember travelling with a kapahaka group way back in 1954, all around the South Island for four and a half months, and we were putting on socials and dances with this kind of music going on, so it was wonderful. Any favourite songs that you have? Oh, all of them. I, I love all of them, really. Yeah, very much. Have you had a dance? No, no, I, I dance in the kitchen. <laughs> dance while you're trying the dishes. Everybody stay where they are. We're going to take a break and have a drink of water. The pamphlet reads Komatsua Social Evening with the words Sweet Saxophone Sounds. At $20 per ticket, it's meant to raise money for the group who travel around New Zealand and admin costs. Member Julie Dwyer, who, between making cups of teas and making sandwiches, I got the chance to talk to her. 
Julie, what is the um, the functions of Te Ropu Tāhiwi? Ko, ko Te Ropu Tāhiwi o Te Whanganui, o, o, Whanganui Atara. That's the name of our kapahaka group. We're kaumātua, um, queer kaumātua. 55 years and over was one of the criteria that um, we were set up under. And it was one of the things that was set up by really a thought that the late Queen, um, Māori Queen, had when attending all the matariki, matatini um, competitions. And she, she muttered one day, where are all the old songs? Where are all the old songs? I don't hear any of the old songs. And from that, matatini got the idea that they would have a taikura group, that's the elderly and um, get them to, to resurrect an iconic composer from days gone by. And so that's how we've become part of the uh, group. Um, we're, we're Tahiwi. Um, tahiwi, of course, means the heart of all native trees within the forests of Tani for us. And by a wonderful coincidence, we have as our first icon, Kingi Tahiwi. And we're, we've been learning some of his songs. And, okay, so we have our senior moments now and again, and you think, Hikama, what's the next line? What's the next action? Where am I supposed to go? But it doesn't matter. No, that's not what it's about. No, no. no. The groups, our groups, are, all the Kobatua groups throughout the Motu are non-competitive. And we just love it. And we just love meeting up with the other groups. Um, because, you know, we can share things without anybody saying, don't you dare copy us. So we can admire what they do, and they say, yeah, yeah, you can do that. But only if we can do that. Poor you did. Man, that was neat. And we can share. And there's no no hara, no bad feelings or anything. That's great. What's the name of this song? River of the Roses. Is this a favourite? Is this a favourite of yours? Oh, way, way back. <laughs> Heavens, yes, I think I cut my teeth on this. Just wonderful to hear the old songs again. They're doing so well. Is this a local band, Julie? Um, Lillian found this band for us. Who are they, Lillian? Who's the band, Lillian? The band, the band is called All Star Band. That sort of congregated together, and when I started this, uh, I thought it'd be ideal for us co-writers, and it's lovely old-time dancing, good exercise for the co-writers, and we wanted to hear saxophone music. So this is why we've got them, and everybody seemed to be enjoying it. <laughs> Love it. Tāpu Tāhiwi takes their name from Kingi Te Ahuaho Tāhiwi, who lived from 1883 to 1948, of Ngāti Raukawa and Ngāti Whakaui descent. He was a teacher, interpreter and translator, and composed songs including Hepuru Taitama E, Takariatsu Takari Mai and Kaore He Wahine. A member of the first Ngāti Pōneke group, Vera Morgan, is treasured by the group for her invaluable guidance and support. 
My full name is Vera Kitiho Warmington Morgan. I'm from Ngāpuhi, from the Mahurihuri, and my marae is Otātara, and my awa is Waima. Oh, kia ora. And my urupa is, is uh, oh, forgot now. But So I've been down here in Wellington since 1936. I'm in my 93rd year. So uh, life has been wonderful for me. I've had many experiences in life. I've learned a lot in my life from an 18-year-old to the woman that I am today. I've uh, travelled the world. I've got daughters in the world, around the world. My children have travelled the world. And we have been a fairly progressive family. And we're at the Komatsua Social Course um, hosted by Te Ropu Tahi. I, I, I belong to many things. I belong to the Komatsua Tauriheri in Wellington. Uh, I belonged to that years ago and still going on. I'm, they just told me today the, the dinner is next, the 19th of November. Wanted to know if I'll be there. I said, if I'm willing, I'm well, I will. Uh, so those sort of things I find interesting to see how our brain ticks and where we're at, what our personal visions are. Because mm-hmm. I like to think everybody has experienced life and got something to share. That's what I think of my life. <clears throat> I've, I've had many experiences, and I do like to share some of the things I've been successful with, most of the things I have been successful with, because I must say I'm a very committed person. I'm a willing learner. I don't take things for granted. And when I talk, I act. That's my, that's my motto in life, talk and act. Don't just talk and do nothing about it. Okay, occasionally we, we sometimes lose the way just a little bit, and Auntie Vera can put us right back on the path with one sentence. <laughs> and it's usually, taihoa, just think about it, love one another. That's right. There's no That's point right. in arguing and no. uh, losing the plot. No. So get your act together. <laughs> and we do. We do. We can usually talk things through and talk it out without any rancour um, or, or hara. You know, and just we have to work it out. Because life is too short, eh? That, that's dear? right, too yes. short. Because I think we have to learn to accept the difference, mm. difference of opinion. If you don't agree with it, well, let it go. But oh, don't hate anybody for saying right. that's their right to say what mm. they want to say. We learn from it. Maybe after you go away and think, what did you say to me? I didn't like it, I'll punch you. And you think about, why did I think like that? Oh, <laughs> so, you know, those sort of things are learning things. Mm. Uh, for us, with this, with this Tahiwi group of ours, I love it because Tahiwi, Kingi Tahiwi, was my icon. I was a, a first member, a founding member of the club. And so I, I walked through my life with, uh, with his guidance and I listened to what he had to say. A lot of us didn't listen, but I listened. I thought it was very good what he was trying to, to gear us or cheer us and, 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 and expect us to be good people, behave in the way. And he always used to say, now go home, don't muck around, go to bed early, get up early and be at work half an hour before starting time. He said, don't go there at the time to start. Go there when you're ready to start. So all those things to me was very important in my uh, adjusting to a city life. So our, our Tahiwi group is, is the works he did. Mm. It taught us in our early days. Mm. So that's why I really love this group of ours, apart from people I love, but I love the principles. 
If you love something, that builds your own self-esteem. Youngest. <laughs> um, ladies and gentlemen, <laughs> while you're eating, our, our wonderful, kind of songs wonderful do you band play? is going to have to go at We play singing. anything from the 1920s so the to the naughty 40s to the um, Quiet, please. millennium, the new millennium today. at seven. Thank you. Much to our dismay, but they really were fantastic. Yeah. They were all Enjoy the rest of the dancing and uh, the beautiful spread. Thank you, Julie, again, and your wonderful team, the lady up there. Okay, and one more prize to go, and we're going to give the band a wee rest, please, so they can have a drink. We've only got a quarter of an hour to go, so oh, okay. we'll keep going. That's Unless fine. you don't want us to. You want some pudding? Okay. We'll have some pudding at seven o'clock. Yeah. What kind of songs, like let's let let's go back to you know when you were both rangatahi and strapping young ladies. What 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 kind of songs were quite popular in in your era? Oh, all the croony croony songs. Um, Pat Boone was very popular, and of course rock and roll had come in. Um, Bill Haley and the Rockets and Elvis Presley and um, yeah, Pat Boone and who else can you remember, Lillian? Oh. Uh, that's playing here today? Oh, no, no, in, in your young days. In your oh, young days. Glenn Miller, Glenn Miller. Oh, that's right. And, uh, <laughs> oh, I can't quite remember. No, no. Um, mm. they, those were probably the favourites. And then, of course, yes. the groups came along like, um, um, who, Paul Ford, somebody Ford and... You know, they used to sing duets and things. And then the guitarist came along and, look here, my mother used to say, turn that rubbish off. <laughs> and say, oh, mum. You know, and, and when my little sister, when she was little and she'd hear a song and she knew that I liked it, she would turn the radio off quick to save the song and she'd turn it on when I got back. She said, I saved your song for you. <laughs> oh, it took her a while to learn that, of course, that didn't happen on radio. But there, there were some wonderful singers. Um, they were all American, of course, until some of our own Howard Morrisons and Ray Columbus and, and uh, Lou Prime and some of those young ones came along. We thought, gee, was they just as good as these Yankee Doodles? And, um, you know, and then, the British ones and, and um, what have you. So, oh, we had, some, we, we've got, we had got some wonderful singers of our own. And losing Howard Morrison was just such a great yes. big shock for us. I went to school with his wife. We both were at Hookerere. So 
I was very sad for, um, we used to call her Gypsy. Gypsy? Uh, yeah. She used to wear big hoop earrings and she had these lovely, beautiful, bluey, greeny eyes. And she looked like a gypsy, I tell you. Mm. And um, it, it was just wonderful. Yeah. Even though Kapahaka was the, the initial force that brought us together, we've, we've discovered that you, you meet for your practice at one o'clock every Saturday. So we arrive at one o'clock and at about 20 past, 12, 20 past one or 22, whatever, I say, hey, you fellas, we better get cracking and have a practice. But, but it's the getting together. It's the camaraderie. It's, it's the whanau tanga, you know. And you, you hear about Auntie Millie's um, <laughs> moko. You hear about somebody's um, daughter just had a baby. And <laughs> did you know that so-and-so fell down the steps and pakarut their leg? Mm-hmm. And so it's the getting together. It's, it's just the wonderful, wonderful um, whanau tanga that, that goes through. And everybody keeps an eye on each other. Hey, hey Lillian, we, we just yes. care for one another. Oh, yes, we do. And we do appreciate Aunt having Auntie Vera with us. Oh, man. She's our very special queen, and we love her. And she loves being with us. And it's just lovely being together. Mm. Uh, we look forward to being together at practice. Um, and uh, we travel. We have been traveling. And sometimes we find it a wee bit hard to dig deep, deep in our pockets. Yeah. <laughs> so this is why I thought, approached Julie and the Ropu to see if we could fundraise for us to go away. And um, I needed their support. And <clears throat> so this is why this special occasion is on today. And, uh, and I thought, well, if we needed... Uh, social, we needed old saxophone music. <laughs> and it's None of been this jungle beautiful. music. <laughs> it's been beautiful. And everybody out there is enjoying themselves. And um, yes, so that's what we're fundraising for. Mm-hmm. So we don't have to really dig deep in our pockets just to help us along. And I think all the other comatas out there are really enjoying it. And isn't it wonderful how, as, com- as, as comata, you're, you're very much active. Oh, you yes, know, we're full of action. <laughs> I mean, it's we're not just about, you know, turning up in the marae yes. and staying home looking after the oh, oh, well, Out there now and again, you feel dancing out there, the old muscles starting to seize up, <laughs> but never mind, you've got to carry on. <laughs> so my afternoon spent at the Komatua Social proved to me a few things. That Māori woman who reach a certain age dress immaculately, that the music was pretty good, and the importance of whānau and friends as you get older. We've got a rock and roll section for you. Justine kicking up her heels at Marae Roa Marae for what sounds like was a pretty energetic and fun dance, Justine. It was. And for photos of the beautiful queer, you can go to our website radioNZ.co.nz forward slash te ahika. Aneira Aropata Taylor, North Tiawa, with this week's Fakatoki. Uh, kia ora, kia ora Justine, ko uh, te ao whare papa te maunga, ko motue ka te awa, uh, ko Ngāti Rārua, ko te atiawa, uh, oku, uh, oku iwi, uh, no motue ka hau, kei reira au e mahi ana. Mm, kia ora, uh, this whakatau ki um, he, he kōruru mo te, uh, 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 mo te ki tanga hewe anō, toitū te marai a tāne, toitū te marai a tangaroa, uh, toitū te iwi. 
when the realm of Tāne and the domain of Tangaroa are sustained, so too is the future of our people. We are, after all, the guardians of our assets and our community. That brings this week's edition of Te Ahikā to a close. When I say Rotorua, Mariah, what do you think of? Tourists and geysers. Well, next week we'll be hearing about both, and from the point of view of Ngāti Wahiao, the mana whenua or whakarewarewa. Whose protest over the whakarewarewa and Rotorua Tomaheke vesting bill speaks to the heart of what mana whenua means. He mihi atu ki ngā kai kōrero i tēnei wiki. Ki ngā kai rā wiki wiki mihini me ngā hua mahi kia ora. Hoki mai anoa tērā wiki i te iwi. Mai te whanu a te ahi kā ki a tātou katoa. Mauri ora! Mauri ora!